0: What a great day to contemplate the first day of the week, to give thought to the sheer blessing and opportunity that's ours to come together as we have this morning. I know we're each so thankful and feel so honored that God has showered upon us the kind of blessings that He has, at least to this point. I might begin by saying, haven't those songs been uplifting? Haven't they been so encouraging? Songs like, oh, to be like thee. You know, as we and I sang that song together, what a motivation it is to strive each day to be more like the Master, to live our life more in a way consistent with His will. I might take just a moment as we get underway this morning with at least the sermon part of our service to at least bring to our mind again the reminder we have a library back there in the office. I know that there's a lot of books available that can assist you in your study. Books that can be of some assistance as you delve more deeply into the Word of God and, in fact, make use of some of those aids and resources that we have. In fact, Brother Wayne and his wife, Aline, shared with us today some additional books back there that they've contributed to that library. So I know, again, that you'd be blessed if you take a look at them, all those books that are there, and certainly avail yourself of them as as you study the Word of God. The Reign of Christ... Our subject today will in fact focus upon and cast a spotlight upon the reign of Christ. It is a continuation of that series of lessons that has brought our attention throughout this calendar year to this point. Once each month, we have made the intent to consider a lesson about a particular aspect of the life of our Lord. And so we looked at His birth, and we looked at His baptism. We gave emphasis to the scene of His temptations the characteristics of the transfiguration, just to name a few. Today, as we continue that, why don't we reflect upon His reign? And that word again is R-E-I-G-N, His reign. I hope as you and I give some consideration to that this morning, that we will be reminded not only about the character of that reign, but a few of the ways the Bible portrays it. I hope as you have your Bible ready with me, we'll be looking at a number of verses of Scripture And I thought it might be well for us to begin by at least categorizing to some degree why this is such an important issue. That is to say, why is it well worth our attention? I'm only going to mention one particular attribute of why that significance is there, but I do want to couch it in this language. There is quite a bit of controversy and a fair amount of misunderstanding connected to the reign of Christ. In fact, you may well have some folks that will knock on your door and they may talk with you rather intensely about the fact the Lord is not reigning yet. They say it's going to be in a thousand year period on earth when He reigns in Jerusalem at some future day. Now let's face it, they're mistaken about that. That is not the way the Bible describes the reign of our Lord. And yet, if one is misled into thinking that, it can have great implications for one's faithfulness here and now. We must understand what the Bible teaches about the reign of the Lord, and it'll be our focus for the study of our time this morning. You may notice about the middle of that slide that we come to appreciate the following. There's a body of belief, though false it is. It is nonetheless very prevalent, quite prominent, and quite frankly, there are many who subscribe to it. I've listed there at the bottom of that slide five elements of that false doctrine, but one by one as I list them, you can easily make connection to the reign of Christ in them. It goes somewhat like this. That body of belief highlights the fact that the Old Testament kingdom prophecies were purely physical. That there was going to be a physical kingdom on earth and every one of them, so we're told, points to that reality. But notice part number B. That same body belief quickly highlights this. Jesus came to the planet and He was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem and His goal was to fulfill those earthly, physical kingdom prophecies. However, the Jews rejected Him. They turned their back upon Him. They did not, in fact, subscribe their support and help to Him. And for that reason, the Lord resorted to a plan B. He didn't establish the physical kingdom like He intended. He established the church, so we're told. And in that way, the church is basically to be seen as this substitutionary arrangement. For that reason, note number D in the belief of these people the kingdom prophecies were not done away with they were only postponed and at some future day in a thousand year millennial reign then the Lord will in fact fulfill those prophecies now it's easy for all of us to see I think that that's very different than what you and I appreciate the Bible teaching us and to see the reign of the Lord that way is to see it quite different than the thoroughness and the majesty and the directness with which the Word of God presents it. Again, all of that's false, every bit of it. The Bible doesn't teach any of that. The Old Testament kingdom prophecies, if you read 2 Samuel 7, it was not physical. If you read Daniel chapter 2, it was not affirmed to be physical. In fact, in the second one, where is it said that Jesus came to fulfill prophecies like that? Didn't Jesus Himself say, My kingdom is not of this world in John 18.36? In fact, isn't it true? Even Jesus affirmed the kingdom wasn't to be of this world. As you close that slide, why don't we then enter into a consideration? Visiting not only the teachings concerning the kingdom, but allowing that to dwell in us in such a way to encourage us mightily in faithfulness and to draw us closer to what the Word of God would teach on all of these things. I chose to develop the lesson then in a way where under the banner of the characteristics of the kingdom, let's list what is it the Word of God has to say about the kingdom, about the attributes that it is to have, and we'll use that to motivate ourselves in light of the sweetness and the specialness and the characteristics of the Word of God. First of all, Let's visit Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. There we have an explicit reference to the kingdom. But isn't it fantastic what it is that we're told? You may recall that Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. And in that dream, there of course was to be seen this mighty image. And it was made of various metals, gold and silver and brass and iron. And it even had feet that were mixed of iron and clay. And yet, in that same vision, in that same dream, I should say, Nebuchadnezzar saw this tremendous destruction of that image because a stone made without hands rolled into it, destroying the image, and the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And one by one, the God of heaven revealed the interpretation of that dream. What did the various metals represent? They represented kingdoms of men. The golden part was the Babylonian Empire. The silver part was the empire connected to the Medes and Persians. The brassy section was the Grecian Empire. And finally, the iron part was the Roman Empire. And we know that because God revealed it. At this point, you'll notice, though, what about that stone? You remember the stone. It rolled into the image, destroying the image, and the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. What's the stone? Daniel 2.44 says, The stone is representative of that kingdom made without hands, a kingdom that God established, and a kingdom that you see was going to last perpetually. Once established, it would never be destroyed. Isn't it then true we could say that kingdom was going to be divine in origin? God was going to establish it. I hope you and I keep that in mind. This kingdom of which we're speaking is not the fantastic idea of scholars. It's not the great idea connected to the features of men. It was divine in its origin. God's the one who revealed it. He's the one who asserted the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. As you keep those thoughts in mind, what if we transition into the New Testament briefly at least and listen to some continuing discussion of that point. Jesus, in reference to the kingdom, said it like this in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Can you and I not note the church and the kingdom are apparently one and the same? What was established in verse 18 of Matthew 16 is asserted to be the kingdom in verse 19. Peter, I'll give you the keys to it. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That kingdom, in all of its unsurpassed blessedness, is the church of our Lord. Let's go even further to part number B. You may notice this kingdom of the Lord is kingly in its government. Might you and I notice it is not a democracy. It is not even asserted to be a republic. It is an absolute theocracy. That means there's a king. And in that relationship to that king, we must appreciate then the nature of what it's like to live in a kingdom. On that slide, I've shared with you a few considerations that again look somewhat like this. When there is a king, when a particular system of government involves a king, the king has absolute authority. The king, you see, is in essence one who has the stamp of approval relative to the legislation and relative to the activities in the kingdom. Given the fact then that it is called a kingdom, That means there's a king. And that means there's a set of laws relative to the ongoing activities of the kingdom. Look at some of the attributes on that slide, if you would. There are many particular passages that might well be mentioned that point you and me into the understanding of the kingly nature of this this particular matter. I've listed for you Psalm 89, verse 36. I've also called your attention to Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-one. 21. It is with respect to that one. I would at least highlight it this, this way. That Jeremiah 33 text brings before us this thought, The law connected to the kingdom is as sure as the existence of the sun in the sky. In other words, if you can do away with the sun, then it will be possible to do away with the features of that law connected to the kingdom. hope all of us are reminded of how certain and sure that, that particular idea is. The kingdom as it was foretold in that day was to be an absolute matter. I suppose in that light we can close that slide by noting how beautifully the church satisfies those prophecies. In Romans 1, verse number 3, in the very outset of the Roman letter, Paul directed attention reminding to them of the nature of that kingdom and how that our King is none other than Jesus the Christ. To add to that, I've asked you to consider that text at Colossians 1.18. I know in our Wednesday night class not many weeks ago, we had opportunity to think somewhat interestingly about that text when it itself says... He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body. And then it goes on to identify it this way. In all things He might have the preeminence. That word preeminence means to be of the first rank. To be of the absolute highest in terms of rank and consideration. And Jesus occupies that position. Didn't the Lord also say in Matthew 28, 18? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. There's no authority that doesn't rest with Him. There is no particular matter of power that doesn't rest with Him. Brother Colonel read a moment ago from Revelation chapter 19. In the midst of that revelation, we find this statement. He, speaking of the Christ, is King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, the church, as the kingdom, does have a king. And Jesus the Christ is the king. That means you and I are thus in position to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, to borrow the words of James 4 and 1 Peter 5, and to do so in a way that we respond with obedient faith and unquestioned loyalty to our king. Not only is it stated that way in Revelation 19, 16, it's also stated that way in Revelation 17, 14. And also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He is king of all kings. Sometimes we sing songs in which we acclaim him by that title. In fact, one of them we sang it Wednesday night, best I remember, during our singing night. We gave emphasis to the very beauty of how blessed is our king and how glorious and how mighty he is. And as we gave that anthem of praise to the Lord, wasn't it a notable thing? Among those characteristics, why don't we add these to it as well? We've also already mentioned it in passing, but maybe it's time to give it a little bit more emphasis. The Word of God testifies that that kingdom is an indestructible one, and that makes it very different than the the kingdoms of men. The Babylonian Empire, as great as it was, has passed into the ruins of history. The Medo-Persian Empire, as notable as it was to be, is now just a distant part of the annals of history. The same could be said of the Greek Empire. The same is true of the Roman Empire. They are all now long distant past. But the church of our Lord began in A.D. 30... And you and I now almost are 2,000 years this side of it. It has lasted far longer than any kingdoms of men. Have you ever given thought of the fact that as great as the Roman Empire was, and without doubt it was impressive, that empire lasted less than a millennium? You could argue that it lasted quite a bit less than a millennium. And yet today, the church of Christ, though begun almost 2,000 years ago, is not only still alive and well, it thrives in many ways as it sets forth the boundary of the fact that the Lord's kingdom is indestructible. It might well be at this point we could highlight it like this. What men can build, men can destroy. But men didn't build the church. Men didn't build the kingdom. In fact, men's hands never touched it. And for that reason, men cannot destroy it. I hope we each are impressed then with the reality of the indestructibility of the kingdom of our Lord. On that particular slide, I've asked you to notice then that men often make mistakes. And men make errors in their judgments. And men make errors in their conclusions. But when it came to the church... Aren't you and I impressed in the words of Ephesians 5.27? It was fashioned and made without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It was brought about in perfectness. It was brought about ideally. May you and I always be impressed with the church, thankful for it and honored that we can be a part of it. As you close that slide, what about the universality of that kingdom? again isn't it impressive when you think about the kingdoms of men how often limited they can be sometimes a territory over which a given king may reign could be a very small piece of land but yet when it came to the kingdom of our lord it was foretold to us and highlighted greatly that it was to be universal all people, everywhere, regardless of continent, regardless of country, regardless of cultural disposition, are invited, yea, welcomed into the kingdom. And so isn't it true you and I are happy to preach the gospel by, what, by way of radio, internet, or direct missionaries anywhere in the world we are blessed to be able to do it. On that slide, I've shared several verses with you. In Isaiah chapter 2, And it's as echoed verbatim in Micah chapter 4. There's a reflection on the nature of the kingdom that it would be established in Jerusalem and it directly says that all nations, hear me now, all nations would flow unto it. It's not as though God would reject some. It's not as though He would refuse some who otherwise in faith would would have a desire to come. Our Lord put it like this in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark's version said it so strongly. In that Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, they were to preach the blessed tidings of the good news of the gospel, and they were to do so everywhere. And it was rather quickly said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. As you journey forward on that slide with me, Isn't it a reminder then that the book of Acts details for us how that those early Christians, they went everywhere preaching the word, Acts 8 verse 4. And we have record of Paul and others who often would journey thousands of miles in the effort to preach the gospel to sin-sick souls who could then hear and have the opportunity of obedience. May I again remind each of us the kingdom is universal in its scope meaning that all would have the opportunity to come to be a part of that wonderful organization. As you think even further about the kingdom and its characteristics according to the Bible, what about some of the details of that establishment? We've already learned several ideas, namely that it was universal, that it was to have the other matters you and I have emphasized, But I hope that we continue to always be impressed with the record of Acts, the second chapter. In many ways, it is the hub of the Bible. All of the chapters prior to it look forward to it. And all of those that follow it are built upon it. Because in that chapter, the kingdom became a reality on earth. The blessed kingdom of our Lord was established. You recall how it took place. The Holy Spirit came upon those apostles in the early verses of that chapter. They were equipped with a capacity of speaking in languages they'd never learned, and so it was that a whole host of people from many different countries had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the the, the feast of Pentecost. Peter and the others preached, and oh, what a sermon they preached! In conclusion, they reach verse 36, and when it says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Many of them were pricked to their heart. And they cried out, meaning, Brethren, what shall we do? And by inspiration, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Approximately 3,000 of them did that very thing that day. And you'll notice, the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved, Acts 2 verse 47. Isn't it thus a reminder? What had been prophesied in light of the kingdom had now become a reality. Because Peter preached about the nature of Jesus as king and Jesus as a supreme ruling matter in light of that kingdom. For that reason, on that slide, I encouraged you to reflect with me about the reality of this. Do you recall, as we began this lesson, we stated that there are some who think that the kingdom has not yet come into reality, that it is still at some distant time in the future. If you wish to underline it, or at least make note of it, you may want to notice in your Bible that there in Acts chapter 2, verses 30-33, through 33, it points out immediately that Jesus was raised to reign. May I say again, Jesus, you and I know He was resurrected, but He was resurrected, He was raised to reign. The purpose of His resurrection was so that He would reign, or over His kingdom. May I say to you that God had His timing a little bit wrong if He raised Him back then 2,000 years ago and He's not reigning yet. He was raised to reign. And He began that reign just a very few weeks after He was resurrected. You and I know the Pentecost occurred 50 days after the Sabbath that followed immediately the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so it was that Jesus began His reign over the majesty of His kingdom a little bit over seven weeks after He was resurrected. As you go back to that slide that's before you, and you think with me about the details, you and I can be forever thankful that the Word of God has shared those details with us, reminding us that Jesus reigns over that kingdom. This next slide will take that even one step further by highlighting the following. That the kingdom, you see, was not postponed. May I emphasize, it was not postponed. It came into reality and into being according to the precise timetable that had been in the mind of God from the distant ages of eternity past. In fact, I've highlighted several brief points And all of these so readily follow our earlier comments that hopefully they will go very smoothly and very, very, very sweetly. Point number one, the kingdom wasn't intended to be physical. Jesus Himself, and don't you and I know, the Lord understood all of this, but He said, My kingdom is not of this world. In John 18, verse 36, For if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. And you remember Jesus told Peter, Put up your sword, Peter! Peter had just cut off the right ear of Malchus, and the Lord had miraculously re- healed that ear. But Peter was told, My kingdom is not going to be such that its boundaries will be pushed by virtue of a sword. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ can touch the hearts of men. He doesn't need swords and tanks and bombs and bayonets. He doesn't need things like that because He can transform a man from the inside out. And when He does, you and I realize how completely that transformation takes place. But notice the second observation. This kingdom of which we've been speaking today, it came into existence in the days of the first century. And therefore, we know for certain that it's not yet awaiting some future element in time I've listed for you the thought of Colossians 1 verse 13 Paul directly wrote to the Colossian brethren and said to them that they had been translated out of the world out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son may I ask you to notice the kingdom was something of of which the Colossians were a part Clearly, it's not something then yet to be established in some future day if they were already a part of it. You and I today, then, realize that not only the Colossians, but the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, they were in the kingdom. John made reference to it in Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10, that they and he were in the kingdom. What about the next element, number three? Jesus made a statement that included a dramatic promise. You recall how it went, and every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, our mind revisits the scene wherein Jesus said, I will not take of it hence until I take it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Listen to me, please. The Father's kingdom is the church. That statement was a direct reference to the fact that the Lord, when you and I partake of the Lord's Supper in heaven, He is looking down upon us with blessed delight as we take of that Lord's Supper. And there's an element in which we are directly communing with Him as we take it. You see, if the kingdom is yet awaiting, then the Lord was wrong in His promise. Because the kingdom is here. And you and I are enjoying communion with Him when we partake of that Lord's Supper. May I say again, The Lord's reigning now over His kingdom. Look at the fourth point. This one often seems to me goes a little bit unappreciated. The prophet Zechariah made a dramatic assertion in Zechariah 6 verse 12. He directly asserted there that the individual that was going to serve as king would simultaneously serve as priest. He would function as both at the same time. It's easy to see what that means. If Jesus is not now serving as king, then He is not now serving as priest, and that means you and I have no priest currently. And that's unfathomable, to think that there is not a priest serving before the mightiness and the majesty of God. May I say just the opposite? Jesus is now serving as king, and He is now serving as high priest. Hebrews 8 verse 1 details Look at point number five. Jesus is currently reigning. And many verses of the New Testament highlight that truth. He is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1 verse 3, as well as that sweet refrain that you see later in Hebrews 8. He is currently reigning. And therefore, it is the eternal purpose of God that it be so. I call to your attention that text in Ephesians 3. And you and I can see again that the church was no fly-by-night arrangement. It was no plan B consideration. As you and I close that slide, how wonderful it is to give thought to the gospel plan of salvation. The kingdom is real. The kingdom is here. And you and I are the citizens of that kingdom. We aren't waiting for some future earthly millennium there's no indication the Lord will ever set foot on this planet again. Aren't we reminded we will rise to meet Him in the air? 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 17 and 18. No wonder as you and I come near the close of this particular lesson. We have set before us the desire to highlight the present, ongoing, supreme reign of Jesus over His kingdom, the church. He's reigning today. Are you submissive to the King? I hope all of us are. But at this point, as you and I give thought to our life, if you aren't living a life subject to the King, may I say it's not the King that's wrong. It's you that have failed. Why don't you, in loving obedience, come before the King? If you have never become a Christian today, oh, how wonderfully that could take place. Would you then think of it like this? Won't you believe in Jesus? Absolutely, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, won't you repent of your sins? Realizing that those are what in fact sent Him to that old rugged cross. As you repent of those sins and make confession of His name, we'd be honored then to witness your baptism into Christ so that as He washes your sins away, you could rise to walk a new creature in Christ and live the remainder of your days on this earth as a faithful member of that citizenship in the kingdom that is the church. Isn't it true that you look forward in that circumstance to being a part of that kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that's handed over to the Father on that day of judgment, and forever you'll be able to be with Him. If you have known faithfulness in Christ... But as of today, your life is not as it ought to be. Maybe you have lived in a way that in fact has discouraged others from following Jesus. Maybe you have lived in a way that's brought reproach upon the name of Christ. You've lived in a way that has in fact brought reproach on the church. As sad as that is to contemplate, may I say, you can be forgiven of that. And God will never remember it again. If we could be of some help today... May I say, the Word of God demands this of you. You've got to repent of that. Changing your mind relative to it and desiring to live faithfully to the Lord as you make confession of those sins. We would be honored to pray to God on your behalf and in so doing, that you might occupy a place of favor, of faithfulness, and of proper station in light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, if we could be of some assistance In either of these ways, it would be our joy and delight to do that and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.